The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He went in and said to her, Rejoice, so highly favoured. The Lord is with you. She was deeply disturbed by these words and asked herself what this greeting could mean. But the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid. You have won God's favour. Listen. You are to conceive and bear a son, and you must name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his reign will have no end. Mary said to the angel, but how can this come about since I am a virgin? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angels answered, and the power of the Most High will cover you with its shadow. And so the child will be holy and will be called Son of God. Know this too. Your kinswoman, Elizabeth, has in her old age herself conceived a son, and she whom people called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the handmaid of the Lord, said Mary. Let what you have said be done to me. And the angel left her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As people of faith, we believe in this thing, and I'm just going to check if we do believe in it. Do we believe in providence? The fact that God is sovereign and nothing happens by accident and everything somehow falls into his plan, and, and it's, it's never random, but it's always somehow beautifully genius in, in a way only God can orchestrate? Providence, okay? Well, if we believe in that, and if it's real, then it's no accident that we are here in Magdala, to gather um, for the solemn feast of the Immaculate Conception. It's no accident that we're here uh, under the prayer and the patronage, if you like, of two powerful women, one astronomically more powerful than the other, uh, the, the mother of God and the apostle of the apostles, the one who was first to see the risen Lord and, well, she was first to see him, she was first to wait for him as well. We'll get to that in a second. It's no accident. I'll come back to that. What colour am I currently wearing? White. Um, a sign of the resurrection, a sign of glory, transfiguration, where we've been. If it were not a solemnity, what colour would I be wearing? Violet. Violet, thank you. I'm glad you said violet and not purple. The good, violet, um, which is indicative of what season that we're in? Advent. Advent, good. And what other season would we have violet? Lent. And what other sacramental moment would we have violet? Reconciliation, penance, yeah, and a, and a few others, sure. So, so the very uh, backdrop that the church is putting in front of us is meant to tell us um, we're preparing for something. I want to say, though, the, 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 the penitential posture we put ourselves in for Advent is different than Lent. It's not another Lent. Um, during Lent, it's a time of penance, of um, abstinence, of fasting, of prayer. Certainly that can transfer over. But the great undercurrent of Advent is not really, um, I don't know, trying to, trying to 
reduce my um, pleasure, <laughs> if you like, but it's staying awake. If you read the readings, if you read the kind of trajectory of the prayers of the church during Advent, stay awake, stay awake, be expectant, be hopeful. For Christians, hope is not some silly, airy-fairy desire, like, oh, I hope it rains on Thursday. That's not Christian hope, because that's like rolling a dice. Who cares? No, Christian hope is hope in a person, and it's not a matter of probability anymore. We know who Jesus is. We know what he delivers. We know what he promises. He makes it very clear. Christian hope is actually a kind of certainty. It's an eschatological hope. It's a, it's a certainty that we can bank on with everything we have. We see that in the figure of Mary Magdalene. The church um, holds her in high esteem because of the way that she interacted with Jesus after the Passion. I mean, she had great, great devotion all through her interactions with him. We heard from Rami how um, she was thought to be a sinner because she was sick. And you stole some of my, some of my content, Rami, but, but um, the, the, the whole connotation of um, sinfulness and being, I guess, thrown by the wayside, thrown to the wayside by God, all of that, a spanner is thrown in the works when we see um, this beautiful, attentive, devout um, person with a, with a heart that's aflame with love for, for Jesus. Um, she's a sinner insofar as she's a creature of need. And who can shed themselves of that title? We're all creatures of need. We all come here with that um, same, same uh, position to be in. Anyway, the passion happens, scandalous as it was. Jesus showed his closest um, followers the transfiguration to, to try and mitigate the scandal of the cross, to try to show them, hey, like, it's going to be okay, I'm God. Um, check out my glory but they're still terrified when it all takes place and, and bewildered and they run havoc, they run in different directions. Mary Magdalene is still there patiently, expectantly. Um, she's there at the burial. She's waiting at the tomb early in the morning. She's bringing spices. She's doing all sorts of stuff in her devotion. Eventually she comes, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. And the first thing she does, she's not in denial. She doesn't plant herself there and weep. She runs to the disciples and says, someone has taken the Lord. Then she goes back and waits. What's she waiting for? Who waits in front of an empty grave? That's a strange kind of hope. That's a strange, strange thing to do. But she does it. And she waits there. Uh, and we know the rest of the story, how Jesus comes and she thinks he's the gardener and, and he has to call her by name and then she recognizes him. Jesus calls us all by name as we wait expectantly, as we fill our hearts with hope. Um, but I want to say with regard to providence and with regard to this solemnity and all of this, that um, something happens in the scriptural story, and I think if we examine our lives, something happens in our own lives where everything is somehow completed. You know, there's a weird symmetry um, in the suffering we endure and then the, the healing and the, I don't know, the confusion and then the... Um, epiphany, like there's a weird symmetry that happens in all of life, micro with us and then macro on the, on the universal level. Think back to that reading in Genesis. The, the readings that the church puts in our mind, it doesn't shuffle a deck and say, yeah, that'll do today. We've heard from Genesis, Adam and Eve, the beginning of sin, <laughs> the beginning of life, the beginning of deep, deep creaturely need, like this ache in the, in the pit of the, of the human person. Um, 
and we hear the story begin. Now humanity is kind of plagued by this great vortex inside them. Um, but you've got Adam and Eve. And, and as we heard from Rami earlier today, Eve was merely woman, um, not merely, but she was woman before she, she had this name of mother, of mother of all people. They were afraid. They were um, naked and ashamed. They were out of relationship with their God, so not favoured. Um, they were refugees, you know, on the run. There were a whole number of other things that we could name. But God desires, and through his providence, which means none of it's by accident, none of it escapes his plan, through his providence, they traverse this long, long winding journey through the history, through the kingdoms we've been exploring, through the family trees, through everything. Eventually, out of the shoots of Jesse, the Nazarene bloodline, uh, comes this, this un, unexpected little family in um, near, what is it, Sipora? What's the place called? Sipporus? Sipporus. Um, unexpected little family. And there's Mary, and there's Joseph, and there's her child, Jesus. Now, just look at how everything flips back to front in that little episode with the angel. The angel comes, he says, you, highly favored one, that's one. Do not be afraid. That's two. Um, your child will be God with you. Uh, he, will, he will redeem your people. He will save your people. His kingdom will last forever. Everything that was broken is, is restored to an integrity that is just unimaginable. We talk about this thing called privilege in, in our faith. And privilege can be a bit of a jarring word when we think of it like sort of politically or socially or whatever because we think, oh, those people are privileged, they should be taxed more or something. Privilege in the Catholic life doesn't function that way. If something receives a privilege, then yeah, it gets some, some extra stuff, but it immediately gets a kind of uh, expanded missionary responsibility, okay? If you've got privilege, yeah, you've got a big mission. You've got more to deal with. Um, you're answerable, if you like, to more. Think of Mary then. And, and all of us might think to sort of envy Mary <laughs> if, if we weren't thinking very clearly. We think, why does she get to be conceived without sin? That's a great privilege. Wouldn't it be good to be conceived without sin? Um, but it's not just a weird privilege for her to go and get the express route to heaven. By virtue of that, she becomes mother of all nations, mother of all people, mother of all creation, mother of God. She's responsible for a lot. She needs that grace. And we need her to have that grace. None of us has the responsibility that Mary has, but she has it. You think to yourself then, okay, once we get over our silly envy, we actually realize we've received a tremendous privilege as well. What happens to you at baptism? Several things at once. Washed of all sin, grafted into the body of Christ, made an adopted son or daughter of Jesus, which means whatever birthright he has, you have. You ever thought about this? That's a big privilege. That means you've got some big responsibilities too. In short, the salvation of the world. 
Not that it's squarely on your shoulders, but you're participating in it. Wow. Wow. Simply then, let's come to the altar um, receiving the great gift that God gives and apprehending something of the responsibility that goes with it, the great, great work that we're given. And we're all given a, a vital part in it. You know, it's weird. Jesus doesn't need anyone, but he wants you. And, he, and he, he even makes it so that he needs you. Think of the infant Jesus at the breast of Mary. Like, what could be a more vulnerable position? That's where God wants to be in relationship with each of us. He wants us to participate in the privilege of life and joy and peace, unimaginable and eternal. <laughs>